Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we explore the subtlety and nuance inside the world of personal protection. Listen as industry experts, thought leaders, and pioneers investigate why it depends is the answer of champions. Ballistic Radio, critical thought over empty rhetoric. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. And now, here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com and get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other things at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. Joining me, again, his second appearance on the show, uh, my colleague at Citizens Defense Research, Ross Hick. Hey, Ross. How's it going, man? Pretty good, John. How are you doing? I cannot complain. I'm living the dream. Insert whatever uh, <laughs> cliche is in vogue currently. But no, I'm good. I'm good. So Excellent. Uh, I'm excited about today's show because you've got quite a bit of pretty unique experience inside of a certain subset of, I guess, criminality that I don't think gets talked about a lot. And I'm, I'm just excited to, to sort of get into that with you. But I guess before we do that, why don't you uh, go over your background real quick for people that may have missed your last appearance on the show? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, didn't do a very good job of describing my, uh, what I did last time. It's kind of tough, but nuts and bolts um, for the last 14 or so years, my day job was following convicted felons around being sneaky. I joked last time about hiding in the bushes. That actually wasn't a joke. I've hidden in bushes and watched people who are uh, <laughs> doing stuff. Um you know, showing up unannounced and searching their property, um, found tons of guns and drugs and stuff like that. Um, right. Lots of evidence of dealing, um, talking to them daily or near daily and their families, therapists, coworkers, friends, all that stuff, trying to figure out basically, are they doing okay? What resources do they need? Or do I need to arrest them and take them to jail right now? Yeah. Um, and that was working for the court, uh, as a, uh, a probation surveillance officer and, um, I still do that. So obviously disclaimer, everything I say today is my own opinion. So it's nothing to do with the day job. Um, But uh, anyways, it it was, it was fascinating because one minute you'd be delivering like a food box to a guy who from the food bank, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, who's a recovering addict and can't feed his kids because he lost his job yesterday. Right. And then 45 minutes later, you'd be at a halfway house talking to a gang member who beat someone to death with his bare hands over 20 bucks. Or, mm-hmm. you know, stabbed his girlfriend six times because he's hearing voices. So it was a fascinating job. And you'd be involved in these guys' lives for years. So it was really interesting. Really interesting. Okay. Well, so tell us what we're going to talk about today. And we'll we'll sort of hop in and I'll ask questions as uh, they occur to me. Yeah. So the general gist of what I was kind of thinking of today is trying to cover a little bit of my experiences of like what the typical violent offender looks like beyond what you see in the news. Right. Or, okay. um, You know, beyond surface level, who is this person? 
and what are their motivations a lot of times and um, and what that can do to help us in our training and where we should focus and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of misconception about that in general. And I think there's some important points we can take away from that as far as what we focus on. So what are the misconceptions? I guess. Oh, boy. Or, or what are the... I you you lead this conversation, sir. Oh man, okay. Nobody puts me in charge very often now. <laughs> well, they should um, they should fix that. So right. Um, no, but so so what I would say is my I'll just describe my typical violent offender that I supervised, and I supervised hundreds of them. Okay. Um. You know, their background, and that's kind of unique to my position is that I get their full background. I know pretty much everything that's happened to that person on a piece of paper up to that point. Mm-hmm. And, and then I get to meet them and, and find out all the rest of it as I go. But my typical violent offender would be, you know, um, in general, uh, dad is dead or in prison. Um usually being raised by mom or grandparents. Um, mom, mom is usually either working full time if uh, she's still around or oftentimes struggling with substance abuse as well. Um, older siblings are almost always in prison or dead. Uh, gang involvement from early childhood. Um, you know, if you get into the gang side of things, it's there aren't actually that many active members for most gangs in most communities, but there are dozens for every active member of kind of wannabes hangers on. Sure. Um, and it's a lot of kid brothers. It's a lot of uh, people like that who, who you know, wannabes mm-hmm. um, who are doing a lot of the tagging and running around doing stuff. Um, so they grow up as those people, oftentimes drug and alcohol use starting at like 12 or 13, um, usually super young. And going all the way through when I get them, which is usually, you know, 18, 19, 20. Um, and hard stuff, you know, meth, heroin, uh, coke, if they're, if they have the money for it. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them have been shot or shot at multiple times. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of them have had guns pointed at them repeatedly um, by the time I get them as adults. Um, almost all of them have seen someone shot or killed right in front of them. Um, super common story. They've grown up hungry with violence and threats and no money and no resources for pretty much their whole lives. And so that's, that's kind of the background of pretty much every single, and there's very, you know, variance there, but like by far it, that's, that's the predominant background. And it gets to a point where you read these backgrounds and they're so similar that they just kind of blur together after a while. And the thing I would take away from that for folks is knowing that person and that background, imagine that person desperate and deciding that they need money. <laughs> yeah. And you're the goal, you're the source of that. How likely is it, do you think? displaying a gun to that person is going to dissuade them? Uh, Probably not very likely unless they really, really think 
you one mean it and two know how to use it and even then that would be questionable right so and and i agree i'd say you know they these guys grow up reading people for a living like on the street in prison most of what keeps them alive isn't resources it's learning the hard way how to read that person and what they're capable of and their intent and stuff like that and so yeah you're exactly right which is you know i think if if you're trying to portray yourself as something you're not to those guys it's very very hard to do right um and i have some stories about that for sure from work that were pretty funny but um yeah even pointing a gun at that person is not necessarily going to register um they don't want to die i mean don't get me wrong they're not most of them yeah so they don't want to get shot if they can avoid it. But to them, the level of conversation that's happening with a gun pointed at them, you know, in their minds is like you trying to decide which insurance to select. One, that's what I was going to say is that, you know, the emotional impact that, you know, having a gun pointed at me like the emotional impact I feel at something like that. And I've had gun pointed at me, but I still really don't like it. Um, and I don't have a whole ton of experience with that, but the emotional impact is going to be a little bit different for someone who has literally been getting guns pointed at them off and on the majority of their life, I guess. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just describing that person, I think everyone can imagine if that was them and they put themselves in that person's shoes, they probably wouldn't. I mean, that might be the nicest thing that happened to him that week was <laughs> right being sarcastic, but just about right. And one, you know, thing, I had a, I had a, well, oh, I, I was going to say, cause we've only got a couple minutes left in this segment, but um, I think that the main thing there is that that really speaks to I think there are certain people that carry guns under the assumption that the gun is going to fix problems for them and maybe even just the display of a gun will. And and don't get me wrong. A lot of defensive gun uses end at the display of a firearm, Um, but it's not necessarily something we'd want to, you know, build a plan around like the only the only card in your hand is, well, I've got a gun and I can point it at someone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that, you know, I have, I have defensive stories of myself where pointing a gun at someone did work and that's absolutely a possibility. And it's great when that happens because then, you know, that's, that's the resolution we want where no one has to, you know, deal with the justice system and, on the receiving end and, and can go home to their families. But yeah. yeah, it's absolutely not what we should bank on because the people we need to be scared of aren't probably going to react that way. Well, and there's some other people that we maybe need to be scared of that folks don't necessarily think about. 
And I want to get into that in the next segment. We have to go to break, but right now we're talking with Ross Hick from Citizens Defense Research. Um, that still feels really cool to say, by the way, Ross. And you're listening. Awesome. To, yeah, and you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the X9 family of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Ross Hick from Citizens Defense Research. And we were sort of discussing like the general, I guess, schema of how a lot of people end up being clients of yours inside of the day job. And we were also discussing you know, what impresses them or does not impress them in regards to, oh, you've got a gun? Cute. But there's maybe some other folks that don't get brought up as much that maybe people that are interested in self-defense should at least consider. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what what we refer to uh, thanks to, you know, Dr. William April as violent criminal actors. Um, I think most people, when they hear those words, they think, at least from my experience, they imagine someone who is drooling all over themselves, you know, with, or, or is obvious, I guess I should say someone who sure. is obviously mentally ill or, or going to stand out. And, and I think the reason for that is that that's a comfortable thought, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's nice to be able to think, man, I'm going to see it coming. There's no way I'd let that guy in my house um, or get near me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that that perception is, is lacking a little bit. The way I would describe it is that the majority of the guys who I have dealt with over the years who have done, I mean, unspeakably violent things, um, they act just like you and me 99% of the time mm -hmm. and are very good at it. And they have a lot of the same motivations in life. You know, they want security, money, success. But the way I would describe it is that they, they have an extra option that you and I, or I should say most people, wouldn't consider, would have a large barrier, right, towards. Like, they look at violence as just another option on the list is equal with pretty much everything else. Right. And for some of them, obviously, violence is the goal. And those are the guys that tend to be a little more obvious in that they're probably going to behave in ways that does eventually reveal kind of who they are and what they're doing. Yeah, expressive violence versus instrumental violence. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think, 
I think the harder question is how our perception of that plays in, right? Because, you know, to give you an example um, of a uh, a violent rape case that I was involved in, you know, you th- most people, when they think that subject, they're imagining probably a parking lot or a bar or something like that. Most people aren't imagining their house. Mm-hmm. And at least from talking to people, most people aren't imagining it's the landscaper who's been working at your house all the time. Mm-hmm. Regular at the house, you know him, he's friendly, um, never had a problem with the guy, and he asks to use the bathroom. Right. And our pro social instincts would say, hey, I'm a bad person if I don't let this guy use the bathroom, right? I'm going to feel bad about myself. Poor guy's sweating out there every day. Right. You know, yeah, no problem. And that's what that looks like more than, again, the you know, the obvious guy who's mentally ill and going to stand out a little more. How much- and that's the majority. That's the majority of what I've had to deal with are those guys. When I I wonder if how much of the decision making process for like the again self defense minded individual is specifically in situations like this are informed by well a rational person wouldn't do this because they'd clearly get caught. And so I don't even need to be concerned about this in this sort of situation or, I mean, is how much of it do you think is a misunderstanding of priorities that, you know, a criminal, and I won't say a VCA necessarily, um, but, you know, a high functioning, high functioning criminal, is that a thing? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean, though? Like, mm-hmm. because I think people's first instinct is, well, the landscaper wouldn't do that, especially if they've been coming to my house for a year, because like, clearly, like, all right, they do it, but there's going to be consequences. Um, yeah. And how much of that is so, at play, do you think? A-, a ton. And I think like, to, to answer that question briefly, because that is everyone's initial reaction was, why would that guy ever do that? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because you're imagining why you would ever do that. You wouldn't. That's the point, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that guy might not see that. He might see that equation as, a, as an acceptable risk that he thinks he can explain away how he's been there every day. So why would he ever do that when you Mm -hmm. accuse him of doing that? Why would he ever have done that? Of course he would get caught if he did. And they'll say that. I would never do that because I would get caught. That'd be stupid. So I would never do that. Mm -hmm. I've had to listen to that quite a bit and, you know, absolutely turn it around on the victim and say, Oh yeah, this, this person was eyeing me from the windows every day doing my job and then invited me into the house and one thing led to another and here's how this went. And they already have that narrative in their head. They already know what they're going to say probably, or thought about it at least a little. Right. And you and I would think, Oh man, we'd never do that because the attention 
the attention itself from society and the focus on us and the justice system is that dissuades us from wanting to do that and losing the things we have in our lives. But if you have nothing to lose and you've been in the, involved in the justice system near constantly, and you just look at that as the tax you have to pay every seven years or so when you get caught, which by the way, was the average for how often my guys got caught again. Um, I don't think that would be a, a, as large a barrier as we would imagine to most of those guys. One, I think part Respe- of it. Well, and, and then I think a piece of this that, you know, is sort of difficult for people to understand or, or most people is, you know, you or I doesn't, don't have that sort of impulse to begin with anyway. Right. And then, right. you know, we've, presumably learned as mostly functioning adults that, Hey, impulse control is important and you can't, you know, you can't just live your life off of impulse. Right. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's the reason why when someone cuts me off in traffic, I don't uh, land the horn at them or, you know, yell angrily or whatever. Like I do those impulses exist. Sure. Um, I don't, I, because I understand all of the things that can, um, happen when you do that sort of thing, I control that impulse. Right. But when you're talking about someone that is maybe coming from a very different place from us, um, has very different impulses than we do and possibly has an impulse control issue or most frankly, most definitely probably has an impulse control issue. It's a combination that is difficult for people to understand if they haven't considered that sort of thing. Absolutely. And impulse control would be like the number one thing you would notice if I took you around to meet these guys. Mm -hmm. We, we joke a lot of times that, you know, they're 20, 30 year old, mostly guys who have the impulse control of a, a you know of an eight year old hopped right. up on sugar most of the time mm-hmm. and you know we can get into it, but as a side note, you know the the justice system is set up to try to get those guys back on the straight and narrow so they don't recidivate, but most of the system is set up traditionally to force them to do a bunch of responsible stuff, like go to these meetings and show up and pay these fines and do this stuff and have a job, do a nine to five. And that's a great idea, but how is that person, you know, if you took an eight year old and stuck him into that tomorrow, how would they do? Probably not real well. Well, if someone was, if someone was holding their hand the entire time, they could probably do the things while someone was watching them. And as soon as that structure was gone, they're just going to be them. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, we joke that like, you know, if they were any, we joke sometimes when we have someone do something just inexplicable to us that, you know, if they were any smarter or better at being a criminal, they wouldn't have gotten caught and ended up, on our caseload in the first place. Right. Right. And, and it's a joke we tell ourselves, but there's an element of truth in that, which is that 
we're dealing often with a segment of society that even in the justice system, we still sort of imagine that they share our ideals and our thinking and our, our value system and try to nudge them more into that. And I think that thinking is so prevalent across pretty much everything we do that it can, it can kind of go dormant in a way where we're not thinking about it actively and it influences our decisions without us even really noticing. Well, and I have something that I kind of want to get your opinion on, but we have to go to break again. Um, so I'll desperately try to hold that thought and uh, hopefully keep my ADHD at bay. Uh, right now we're talking with Ross Hick from Citizens Defense Research. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdnance.com. This segment also brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance. It's a twofer. Big Tech's Ordnance is the best place for you to find all of your everyday care needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the Candela from Modlite at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you need an optic on your carry gun? Well, Big Tech's Ordnance has those and they don't judge much. Glock accessories? Yes. Fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, Big Tech's Ordnance has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike too. Visit BigTechsOrdnance.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with Ross Hick from Citizens Defense Research. And something that I think <laughs> I'm really curious to see, one, how this conversation goes, and two, how the the listeners feel about it after it happens. I guess that'll depend on how it goes. But something that we probably need to keep in mind is that we use words like good and bad and we use those words assuming that everyone agrees about what good behavior is and bad behavior is and something that maybe is worth considering is that not everyone has the same set of morals or values and whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing um, doesn't really matter because it's just like noticing it's raining outside, right? If you look outside and it's raining, um, like that just is. And, right. and this sort of dichotomy or maybe, you know, the idea that <laughs> reality is not a thing that people universally agree on do you do you think that's maybe an important part of all this that doesn't get talked about enough? Absolutely. And I would even add to that and say, not only can we not count on our values being shared between individuals necessarily, but those values change and sometimes are very circumstantial. You know, a lot of people have a hard time putting themselves in the mind of someone who's who would do something like this. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, imagine you got a DUI and it was pretty bad. You, you 
hit someone else's car and totaled it and they were in the hospital for a while you lost your license for a bit suspended and you got to go deal with a probation officer for for years and um and try to get your life back but you know imagine that that person is someone who just came back from a deployment and this is a real case you know um not just my imagination came back from a deployment and their whole life fell apart while they were on deployment. They have no family anymore, no resources. And they were drinking, you know, to, you know, as a, as a self-medication. Yeah. Unhealthy coping mechanism. There you go. And crashed, crashed their car and uh, in a pretty bad way and ended up with all these repercussions from it. But they were already struggling, right? So you add on the fact that now they have to figure out how to pay for everything. They have no transportation. No one's going to insure them, you know, for a reasonable amount of money anytime soon. So no car. Um, and getting their license back and paying all these fines and fees and everything. Um, all these hoops they have to jump through. And I think most of us could see that, could, could at least see that example as, oh, man, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I could see how that would make me a little desperate. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's not a whole lot of distance from there to starting to make some pretty bad decisions in your life. And it's comforting to think that I'm not the sort of person that would ever do that. And okay, you know, we may not be the sort of people who would ever go tie a whole family up in a house and and murder them and burn the house down. But imagining that we're not the sort of people who would ever mug someone for 20 bucks or steal a car or something like that. in those circumstances, I think is a little, is a little short sighted from my experience. I've seen a lot of really, really bad people who, and I use that term as in like, they have done very, very awful things to their their fellow human beings, mm-hmm. up to and including murder in, in cold blood. I've seen those people do very, very heartfelt good things in certain circumstances. And I've seen people that we would imagine as very, very good people who have everything to lose. They have great lives, seemingly, do inexplicably violent horrible things that destroy their lives and everything around them and so you know i'm not trying to be hopeless about it and say you know you just can't trust anyone i'm more trying to say consider that that is not as far for a lot of people a majority of the population as most of us would like to think well, and the economy that, getting, you know, worse and Lord knows my investment portfolio is that doesn't help because that statistically that usually pushes more people into that category. Sure. Um, pretty regularly. So it's not like that's going to get better in the next couple of years. Well, and that's kind of an interesting thing, right? And, you know, so all of, all of the instructors at Citizens Defense Research, we, we have a group chat, right? And I was uh, just the other day saying like, yeah, I'm kind of pissy right now. 
And, you know, I, I sort of essentially express, it's like, you know, being able to recognize "Ah, I'm off. And the reason I'm off is not because of any one big thing, because one big thing is super easy to spot. Like if, you know, a significant other dies or a parent or, you know, something like that, you lose your job. Like that's obvious. And most people, when that happens, you know, normal people will go, okay, um, I need to sort of circle the wagons and, and pay attention to how I'm behaving and how I'm feeling and stuff like that. Or at least if you're managing your own mental health. Right. And the thing is, you know, for me, um, being able to notice not when big things are going on, but when a bunch of really tiny things, none of which are important really, and none of which actually matter, but they all happen at once and how that can impact stuff. Right. And then as you were saying, when you add in like the, the extra pieces of, you know, and and I'm, I promise I'm getting to a point here and then we can talk about it more next segment. When you add in the extra pieces of, you don't ever really know what someone's got going on and you don't know if maybe they've got a bunch of big things or a bunch of little things and one or two big things, or just like the general, Ennui that seems to be a bunch of people are now Googling that um, <laughs> that seems to be prevalent in the year 2022, right? Um, I guess when, you know, and I can't remember if it was William that said this first or if I just heard it somewhere, but, um, you know, whenever you're dealing with anyone, uh, be careful which rabbit hole you decide to jump down because you never know how deep it is, right? And, absolutely and i think that's something to keep in mind um we have to go to break and then i kind of i want to talk a little bit about yeah we kind of you know we've sort of framed this thing like well you're not saying don't trust everyone like just trust no one um <laughs> but i think maybe there are some things that people can do once they consider like, all right, I might not be able to spot this as obviously as I think. And we're going to talk about those things, hopefully, when we get back from break. Right now, we're talking with Ross Hick from Citizens Defense Research. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordnance.com. We're talking with Ross Hick from Citizens Defense Research about his uh, years of experience dealing with, you know, the stereotypical violent criminal actor, but also the folks that maybe we don't consider as much. And before the break, you were you know, you were sort of talking about how you don't want to paint a hopeless picture, but I guess what would be, what are the things that, you know, we should be looking for? What are the red flags, I guess, that are maybe not as obvious, but are definitely important? So to your last point before the break, you were, you were commenting on, you know, how I, I said earlier, I didn't want I didn't want the message to be trust no one and, you know, situational awareness and all that. 
I find that fairly unhelpful. And I, I think what I would point out is that of the last three homicides that I, you know, um, supervisor was involved with, um, you know, one was about a, a spilt milkshake in a drive-through, um, young guy with no criminal background, spills a milkshake, gets angry, bumps the car in front of him, starts an argument in the parking lot, escalates to the point where he shoots a guy in front of his kid mm-hmm. and kills him in the parking lot. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other one, second one was a, a loitering where someone just didn't like the fact that someone was hanging out near their apartment, got in an argument again, no criminal background, no real prior violence. Um, went and confronted that person, went back to it and ended up shooting and killing him. And then the third one's kind of more like what I think a lot of people would imagine, you know, gang member sees a guy who he thinks owes him 20 bucks. It's not even the right guy jumps him and beats him to death in a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I would take away from that is that, you know, it's less about, there, there are plenty, plenty of good classes out there to go take for recognizing precursors to violence and seeing that coming when it's like the third guy or when it's something, you know, approaching you out of the blue. Yeah. But I think it's important to remember that the first two and the majority of stuff I deal with were initiated by the, the victim in a lot of ways. Or they chose to stay there and argue about it. They had an opportunity to leave. In both of those cases, the murder weapon was retrieved. The person left, went and got the weapon, and then came back. And so, consider how many times have you have you stayed in an argument or an altercation that you probably could have or should have just walked away from? I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we focus a lot on our gut and that misleads us. And I don't want to say that we should ignore our gut feelings because it's a super, super powerful thing we have there, right? Which is that driving is an analogy. You can look at another car and pretty quickly make a determination of how attentive that driver is, right? Just based on the behavior of the chunk of metal that they're flying in down the highway. Yeah. Our brains are incredibly powerful at that intuition part and behavior. But I think where we fall down is then we talk ourselves out of it. We ignore it. We think, oh, I'm crazy or, oh, no, my pride is more important or I'm going to stay here. And I think that's the part that we have to get better at. Well, frankly, our gut or our instincts or our whatever is just like, you know, an Amazon review, right? And what I mean by that is that if the reviewer actually knows anything uh, or, you know, is not a doofus, uh, they might put something useful in that review or conversely. If, you know, instructions unclear, cat stuck in fan again, uh, it wouldn't turn on. Well, you didn't plug it in. Um, Like, 
So our instincts and our gut, we talk about that as if it's something that we can't develop and train. And I think that is a massive failing on a lot of, you know, a lot of the conversation that occurs around stuff right this, like this, right? Is, you know, well, listen to your instincts. Well, if your instincts have been formed and molded over the years to make you an aggressive jerk that bullies people to get their way, um, you might run into some issues, um, you know, or, I mean, and I can come up with any scenario there, but do you, do you think that there's some value in that sort of thing, I guess? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I taught concealed carry classes to the general public uh, on top of my other jobs for, for a number of years and quite a few students. And what I tried to do towards the really only the last like five years was incorporate in the limited time I had some very, very basic force on force scenarios. And this Mm -hmm. was, I had been doing it at the day job for the, you know, for the government for more than a decade. And so I had the tools, but what I found was that the general public is incredibly overwhelmed by that stuff. And even if they do can recognize some of the warning signs, some of the precursors, it's so fast for them perception wise because they've never experienced it before. And so, and had to actually do it with someone live right in front of them. Right. Mm -hmm. It's easy to watch a video and think, Oh, here's what I would do. And then I take that same scenario and I do it live at half speed and to a person, I think I had, you know, out of something like 500 students in that time period who went through that, maybe two who actually were able to think through and, and react appropriately within the time frame given, even at half speed. Mm-hmm. And so what that tells me is as an industry, we are doing our students a disservice if all we do is go try to shave thousandths of a second off of our draw time. And don't get me wrong. I do that too. I mean, it's cool, right? And and it has applicability to stuff. But if that's all we're doing and we're missing the component of starting to expose our students to force on force, realistic force on force, not the popular thing, which is expensive paintball. Yeah. Um, Whack-a-mole with sim rounds. Right. And that, you know, that's fun. Don't get me wrong, but you can, that doesn't take a lot of imagination and you're not really learning much other than what you already know is, you know, shooting, moving stuff. Okay, cool. I think, and the decision-making process, right, of, hey, am I employing the right force level for this, you know, this scenario legally? That's super important as well. But I think just getting people the reps of being able to interact with people in a realistic scenario for a average person on the street 
is a super underserved portion of, of what we do. And the more I've done over the years, the more comfortable I've gotten at the day job to the point that nowadays, mostly when I end up in a scenario like that, no matter how crazy the scenario, usually what's going through my mind is, oh, it's this one again, or, oh, yep, here's what I would do. And I think that elimination of novelty, novel stimuli, is is vastly underserved in what we do. Well, and I think part of the issue there is that if you look at the number of people that are willing to go and shoot 1,200 rounds over the course of two or three days to go and shave a couple tents, um, like, and then compare that to the number of people that are willing to go and really feel stress and anxiety and uncertainty that are part of, especially when you've not been involved in many of them, part of those kinds of ambiguous or open-ended situations. There's a lot more people that are going to want to go have fun. I mean, and that's, that's the challenge, right? So I enjoy, yeah. uh, kind of, I kind of enjoy uh, Force on Force. I've done a fair amount of it. Right. But I'd be lying if I said it was 100% enjoyable. Um, I, I don't know anyone. And, and here's the thing, good force on force. Cause if it's good force on force, yeah. you're going to have some sort of emotion attached to it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a large possibility of failure. Right. And not set up for failure, but it's there. And oh, absolutely. You know, it takes a special kind of person to put themselves in that sort of situation on purpose. And it takes a really special sort of person to put themselves in that situation on purpose over and over and over again, especially when it isn't their job, you know? So, yeah. I mean, we're coming up on the end of the show, but like, do you, you know, is that just kind of, it is what it is? Is there an answer to that? Or, I mean, do we need to do a better job of making force on force more accessible to um, inexperienced people? Like what's, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the latter. And I think, you know, imagining that student base is going to change is, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And my experiences with teaching force on force for, you know, more than a decade at the department was very much that where it was, you know, you would have some students who could kind of take that on board and go, yep, that's what I can learn. And then you'd always have students who were incapable of, of receiving that information and just defensive, defensive. Here's why that wouldn't have happened, even though it just did. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think one of the best things that, well, one of the things I've learned over that time is that 
a lot of it comes down to the instructor and how they are approaching that. If they've created a realistic force on force scenario that has that emotional kick and relevance, then they don't need to be the one telling you you would have died or, you know, stressing that, you know, even if you're denying it, you know, hours mm-hmm. later, you're going to be sitting at home going, hmm. And I think what we, the best I have seen is an instructor who can, I don't want to say make it fun, but make it palatable yeah. to people who may never have experienced that before, not make it the, make it clear that failure is expected and everyone is going to fail at some point. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. And that's the fun is seeing how far you can go and then trying to do better next time. Yeah. Versus look really cool in front of all your friends and have a really cool video posted about how awesome you did. I mean, great. That's, that's cool. But what did you learn from that? So I think that's the key. And I think that's the hard part, right? Is there, there are people in our industry doing that, but precious few. I mean, finding force on force is hard. Finding force on force that focuses on the right things realistically for the average, you know, self defender out in the community is hard. And then finding someone who has that heart behind it that student-oriented, individualistic goal and approach is super rare. And I hope listeners, I hope people in general can, if they're serious about self-defense, go find that stuff and find a motivation to do that and find those people and spend their money and their time there. Yeah. Um, Ross, Man, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to everyone. If uh, what's one last thought you would leave people with? Doesn't it can be related about what we've been talking about? Could be honestly um, anything at all. Uh, dealer's choice here, sir. Oh man, uh, I'd say the things that have helped me the most out of everything I've done have been. Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, that's not going to come as a surprise to most of the listeners, but that that helped me learn to fail gracefully and mm-hmm. learn from that and and keep going. Um doing force on force and taking as many classes as I can from as many reputable people as I can. Um, because I've learned something from every single one of them. But get out there and I know money's tight and Times are tough, but find as much stuff as you can do um, to still get those experiences and still try to keep that training up. And that'd be about all I got. Cool. Ross, thanks so much. I, uh, I love you, man. You always say really intelligent and interesting things, and uh, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks, man. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Hey, guys, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And hey, if you think we deserve it, please keep leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes. It helps new people find the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe and see you next week. Dun, dun, dun.